Hello, 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 and welcome to this edition of Informed Consent. I am your host, Dr. Chris Martinson. With me tonight, the beautiful, talented Evie Botello. Welcome to the program. Hey, everybody. Good to be here with you. Of course, we have Ryan in the studio. We've got Mike in the comments. Rest of our team, Morgan and Aaron. Uh, we've got a full team here to do what we do in this world. And wow, what a world it is these days. Oh, my goodness. We are a little bit in crisis, in case you hadn't noticed, or maybe if, if you haven't. Glad you're tuning in. We're going to cover some of that here tonight. Um, it's uh, It's been an, a pretty incredible week. I've just been doing everything I can to stay on top of it. And of course, that's just from the information flood standpoint and then from the emotional standpoint. Wow. A lot of people have been checking in to us saying this is getting hard, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so actually the hardest part about all this is going to be our emotional resilience, our ability to actually stay calm, focused, organized and thriving through this period of time that we're in, which is, I think, just getting started on the chaos side of things a little bit. And um, local mileage will vary. (laughs) Europe is going to have, it's going to be different than the southern U.S., which is going to be different from California, which has got its own little arc that it's going to have to live through on this story. Uh, It's going to be different everywhere. So um, as we look at this uh, world in crisis right now, I'm both worried about what we're seeing um, and um, really excited too because this is this moment where I think Charles Eisenstein put it best. He said, this is the interregnum. The interregnum is a period of time between two separate reigns. So the reign of the old king, the king is dead, long live the king. But before you get find out who the new king is gonna be or queen, Uh, That interregnum is when the power is in balance, when the story is going to get rewritten and you don't know who that next ruler is going to be. Is it going to be somebody amazing or somebody really awful? And so it matters a lot. We are now between the biggest sets of stories you can imagine as a species. This isn't a U.S. story. It's not Chinese, not India, Pakistan. This is our species is between stories. Old story, infinite economic growth on a finite planet. Yay, we ran that for a while. It's a lot of fun. It was a party. We had a good time. Uh, That is now over. We're in a new part of this story now where we clearly can see the edges of what's going to be possible with respect to energy. Oh, my goodness. Watching all of this come cascading down, watching what Europe is going through right now, watching how the Green New Deal dreams, which they put a lot of effort into, have been sort of revealed to not be uh, quite what they were expected to be. So we're watching now coal-fired power plants get started back up because it's an emergency. We're watching oil-fired power plants because it's an emergency. Europe's about to go through an extraordinary energy crisis in the midst of one now, but this winter, it's going to be really tough. And I don't see any way to avoid that at this point in time. And it's a little bit self-inflicted. It's a little bit circumstances. Like, who knew that the Freeport, Texas terminal for LNG exports was going to catch on fire and blow up, right? That severely hampered the United States' ability to put natural gas in a liquefied form out into a world that's really short of the stuff right now. And so that's just some bad luck there, I guess, we hope, unless that was, and unless it turns out not just food plants are explosive and fire catchy, but <laughs> maybe, maybe LNG doesn't surprise me, but you know, those food warehouses, when those distribution centers are getting smoked all the time, like that one that just burnt in, um, in, the Netherlands there. Uh, gosh, that was uh, the picnic. The picnic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a, um, gosh, Bill Gates might have lost a few bucks on that one. It was, <laughs> that, that one, <laughs> that one, that one <laughs> caught on fire for some reason. 
And, and so we can, let's go there because I want to start with this. Um, yeah, jump right in. This thing that's happening, this Dutch farmer's rebellion. Hey, Ryan, I think this is actually a video. Can you play this one? Yeah, let's take a peek here. Yeah, look at that. That makes me happy. Well, it makes me happy too. <laughs> so these the, these farmers are are rebelling because their whole way of life is now up for grabs. It's being it's under assault, and it's not just their farms that are under assault. They've kind of had it up to here. They feel like their culture is under assault. They feel like their entire way of life. They feel disrespected. It's it's really an astonishing thing. Of course, it's no different that I think than the truckers in Canada, except the Dutch people are just a little spicier. <laughs> oh yeah maybe they learned maybe they watched what happened Chucky. up there and they're like you know cleaning the statues and being polite and feeding the homeless how did that work out you know well, um it turns out that that you can't here's the thing you can't negotiate with these people the trudeaus of the world you can't negotiate with them you can't can. and mark Rutte, the the leader of of holland you can't you can't negotiate with these people they are wef full on board our way or the highway um ideologues it, that and that's the thing that they're, they're about the ideology mm -hmm. and that's that's um that ideology of course says power starts at the top and everybody else has to just sort of live with it so uh, this gives me hope i like seeing this i like seeing this you want to know what else i like seeing um was this uh so this is another way this is part of the ideology here they say dutch farmers are still protesting against climate communism climate communism this I've is how it's being framed over there well do you know what this do you know what the, the the underlying reason is that the farmers are why their farms are under threat yeah they say that it's about nitrogen and it's about um fertilizers and such being you know them being deprived of things that they need to grow their crops but also that the green um sort of rhetoric that's being put into law potentially it's is climate change it's, damaging for them they say there's climate change gases carbon mm -hmm. dioxide we're all familiar with that one but there's nitrogenous no2 no3 are also climate forcing gases and so mm -hmm. they said wow we have to control how many of these go up into the atmosphere so there were a bunch of rules that they adopted and then but they're not going to uh, apply those rules to any of the surrounding countries it's just <laughs> we're going to start here with y'all <laughs> so the dutch farmers like that's a little unfair right and and so this idea that that small farmers will get squeezed out because they have to adhere to sets of climate rules and nobody can really say for sure that not putting fertilizer on your fields getting rid of your animals how that's really going to contribute to climate change not happening and in particular these same rules are being put forward by people who fly everywhere in private jets they own six or seven homes and they've got giant 400 foot yachts but somehow it's the small family farm that needs to go under but if you pay attention as those small family farms go under, there are people like Bill Gates and other large giant money firms, private equity firm money, stepping in and buying those. Now, we've seen this going on, on and on and on. It, it's, it's been astonishing to me the power and the speed with which every day I wake up, I'm like, they made a, they made a factory that can create 10,000 tons of crickets in Canada? That's a lot of, yeah. You can catch a lot of sunfish with that many crickets, Shoot. but I'm not sure what else you do with them, right? But they want people to eat them, right? And so 
And so when they say, oh, we have to have these more plant-based diets, what they really mean is a plant that looks like a, looks like a refinery. That's the kind of plant. You're thinking this green thing with leaves. No, it's like they, they want processed food that has that it requires capital. Mm-hmm. No longer shall we have these quaint little individualistic farmers with their quaint notions of having a family and a sense of identity and using the energy from the sun to create food. None of that. We want these shiny plants when, of course, it's capital again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It takes money to set up. These plants cost 50, 60, 80, 100 million dollars or more now and they're pretty set up the way they are right i mean they've got beautiful greenhouses and like all the infrastructure for farming as is right now the the, yeah well they're the the, netherlands are the second largest by dollar value exporter in the world yeah so they export a lot of really high value stuff now here's the thing even if we get our cricket factories nobody's asked or answered this question yet what are we feeding the crickets Last I checked, they don't just grow magically, right? <laughs> we don't give them like an AI program. We, we put them in the metaverse and they get bigger, right? Nice. <laughs> they, get, they have to, what are we feeding them? They still have to eat protein on them on what their end. What do you end. feed them? What do you feed them? You feed them grains and... You'd, so yep. We'd have to grow the same things we'd be Probably. growing for animals But anyway. the idea was that they would just be a little bit more efficient. Maybe they fart less than a cow. Or I don't know what the story is they're going to come up with. But the bottom line is, is that what they want is whoever they, these, they, they just want us being fed by centralized systems of control where they control the food through large capital. This quaint idea of people and tractors in the sun and manure. <laughs> they don't want that story anymore, right? So, so yeah, that, that not so much on, on that particular story. Now, here, here's where if I'm the leadership of these countries, though, I think Canada did a really good job with the media and shame on the media, shame on the police in Canada. Shame on, of course, the leadership. Christian Freeland, who, by the way, that was that, that sort of twitchy lady who always was standing near um, Justin Trudeau, and, and she's the interior minister or something like that. I forget what she was, something like that. Anyway, she just got appointed to be on the tr- as a treasurer for the WEF. So rewarded. Ding. Um, at any rate, uh, uh, they the farmers there got really really trashed um, but this is things are not going as well or as smoothly for team elite oh, with yeah? the Dutch want to know why yeah because of this the <laughs> firemen have joined in <laughs> okay you lost fire okay sometimes you lose a fireman in France they lost the firemen remember that when they the the, Gijon, the yellow vest yeah. the police were busy shooting stuff at their faces and, and the and actually at one point the police and the firemen were, were fighting so for whatever reason the firemen tend to join in these things before the police do, but they lost the police a little bit too. So Dutch police officers are arriving and handing out cookies to the farmers, which is like, hey, Ottawa police, this is embarrassing. You just, the Dutch police out polited you. This is not a good look. No, that's not if a good If you really look. understand like <laughs> what that, what I just said there, uh, yeah, this is not a, not a good look. So at any rate, um, uh, this is a good sign, though. So we're starting to see more and more of this. I'm going to have a special interview with uh, Michael Jan, who's over there. I'm going to interview him tomorrow. That's and great. he's in contact with certain MPs over there and with the farmers and just on the ground. So I can't wait to find out more he's directly. A, he's a Peak Prosperity. He is. He's been a Peak Prosperity member for a while. Yeah. Yeah. His sister, who's a veterinarian, found found the COVID coverage in early 2020 and said, hey, you should watch this. Um, so he jumped on board and... We've been having a great time uh, chatting ever since because he's over there. He flew over there right away and said, yeah. Now, this is where it gets really dodgy, really dodgy for the powers that be because 
If you think it's kind of dodgy that the Dutch police have outpolited the Ottawa police, looking at you, Canada, this has got to get them really raveled, rattled right now. The German farmers have joined. I have it on good authority that when you can get the Dutch and the Germans to agree on something, you messed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just really you dropped the ball on that one. So, yeah, here we see a uh, uh, bunch of uh, tractors coming over from Germany flying the German flag, Dutch flag, and, and coming on over um, and shaking hands and, and joining in. So this is actually this rebellion is really starting to spread and so, again, this isn't just about people saying, farmers saying, um, we don't like these rules about the, the nitrogen. It's, it was just, it's the proverbial straw on the camel's back. Right. Yeah. So I think we should go over there and, and meet some of these people. I'm sure they're interesting folks. Yeah. They have stories to share. Yeah, and then uh, finally in this in this particular series, um, they actually, German and Dutch farmers came together and, this morning and they blocked a distribution center in Terra Appel and the Netherlands. And uh, this is what scares the corrupt EU politicians, the union between the peoples of Europe that's happening. It's great. Um, indeed it is. So, so this is actually a pretty big deal, what's going on over there. And you know how you know it's a big deal? It's not in our news. Again. Again. Like, I mean, it is like a, Canada wasn't really covered. Not, not like, truckers. like in terms of the import of it, mm. very much not, mm -hmm. not covered. No, that makes sense. So, Sadly. yeah. Did you have a hard time finding pieces about it? Like on Twitter, is it already getting sort of slammed out of some of the usual places you might find it? Well, I, I know how to look on, I know where to find it, but I have to go find it directly. It doesn't show up in my feed. Even yeah. when I sign up on these for uh, somebody like like this one um, radio genova uh i sign up i take the notification bell i say notify me when they post stuff i don't get notified right okay. it's just like i get people unsubscribed from my channel all the time it's twitter being twitter and now that you know they're suing elon musk to consummate the deal uh to buy twitter i, I don't know i'm kind of hopeful that that elon musk does buy it um because that might make my life a little freer and more fun but at the same time, I don't think he should overpay, and he'd be way overpaying. Yeah, at forty-four billion. It's not I didn't worth it. Realize they're suing. It's him. not worth it. It's <laughs> it's like the first thing you'd have to do if if I first thing I do if I bought Twitter is I'd fire like ninety-eight percent of the people, right? Anybody who was involved in any of their policies around shutting down open discussion of science, enforcing certain policies, making sure that Fauci's point of view got out there, but no others, you know, those people, they'd all have to, they'd all be out looking for a job and they'd get a bad recommendation and be like, never hire this person for anything important. <laughs> that's looking for integrity. Don't, don't bother. Yeah. Yeah. That's too bad. But yeah, it would have been nice to have him at least expand the reach that Twitter seems to have lost in the last several years, you know, mm -hmm. it needs to be more diverse. Now, can you, Pull up what Janice is saying there. Janice Hornby, um, most about two thirds of the way down, Ryan. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Janice Hornby is saying, "I feel hopeless." I'd like to discuss that um, mm. because just had an interview yesterday with Matthias Tismet, who's the um, professor of clinical psychology at Ghent, who, who talks about mass formation. He doesn't use this term, but I will. Mass formation psychosis. 
Uh, and, and in particular, he's talking about totalitarianism. In fact, this is, this is the book, um, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Great book. If you get it, it won't come with all these things because those are all my notes um, I took in a fabulous, uh, really great interview. But he was saying that one of the key things that happens with totalitarianism that pertains to this comment of being hopeless, Janice, is that, um, is that they have to make it seem like what they're up to is inevitable. That's where that can create the sense of hopelessness that they are all powerful, and what do you, what can you do about anything, right? And so when you're depowered like that, then you're right where they want you, right? They don't want us to know that we're powerful. So that's why they, the media, just can't not tell us fast enough about all these uh, farmer things that are going on. If the media was being at all honest, you would have been saturated already with human interest stories, and they would have interviewed the eight-year-old son and daughter of you know a farming couple. You would have found out about certain people who are the heroes of this, because this isn't just like a few farmers driving around. Trust me, there's leaders, there's people who are more charismatic. They're, they're, it's all like any human endeavor. There's a hierarchical formation where right. some people are helping to drive the strategy, the ideas, the framing. And like certainly the they've got, yeah, like the truckers, really, really intelligent people. Like I said, I would hold, like right now, instantly, if you said, Chris, could we replace 100% of the people working at the CDC with Canadian truckers? I'd say, do it. It'll be way better. They can't possibly screw up any worse. And I'm sure they'd get it better over time because they would say, with all earnestness, well, what do we have to do to run this right? And I think they would. So that hopeless thing, though, comes from that sense of inevitability that totalitarians like to they like to they like to make it seem like it's all inevitable it's inevitable janice we're all going to be eating crickets it's inevitable you're going to have a little sensor put under your skin at some point that's going to track you you're, it's inevitable that you're going to lose more privacy it's inevitable that you're going to have to use a central bank digital currency that's kind of how they roll but is it mm. is it really i don't think so i, I think, think so. Oh, there's so many things I feel about that particular uh, subject, but um, one of the ones is is called, I, I want to read something called The Guest House by Rumi. <clears throat> this, oh, I love this one. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each one has been sent as a guide from beyond. I think that's an interesting one. Mm, what was that first line again? I like that. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. Mm. Like our thoughts are yeah. beings visiting us, almost. Well, this is, this is the critical part um, that I love. And, and that's what I loved about talking with Matthias about what's in this book, is that um, he gets very metaphysical in there and philosophical. And part of it was that one of the what was sort of gelled for me in that interview was this idea that for me, the, the, the most critical flaw, the thing I really despise the most about the totalitarians out there, who many of them are gussied up in a thin veneer of progressivism, right? Which they're anything but, right? Um, is that they 
are fundamentally here's it you wonder what scares me the most about them they're boring really boring like just painfully boring right because they'll say things like you have to follow the science but then they refuse to follow any of the science right they'll, they'll be like they, they can't follow simple logic because they're they're just in obedience to this ideology so everything to to that totalitarian is you have to swear fealty to an ideology but you don't get to question the ideology it doesn't improve it's handed to you mm. and it's handed to you by a human which means it's kind of flawed in some cases it's very flawed and in the cases of say that what the nazis did or what stalin did it ended up in mass atrocities and 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 i find well that is frightening but fundamentally these are people who have very little humor they don't there's no fun like this really submit to that totalitarian ideology to me is just drab and gray like a soviet apartment block you know it's just soulless it's no fun there's no singing no dancing no laughing you know because mm. any one of those things might be perceived as a threat to the dominant ideology you know so it's boring so i've started calling them that <laughs> on twitter it's people who come in and and they're all full of their fluff and bluff and you know and you know how could you be such a cruel person to not blah 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 blah, blah. i'm like oh god you bore me right because it is it's boring really boring i'd rather be hanging out with these farmers like i'm pretty sure they're having a good time those truckers had a good time i agree it's about life so so that's the the ideology of totalitarianism though it's fundamental defect down deep is it asks us not to live mm. not to live into who we are to not bring our gifts forward, to not think original thoughts, to not find what our soul's purpose here was, mm -hmm. and to really live into that. It doesn't want us to be individuals. It wants us part of some collective. Mm. That is if there's a utopia to be found in that collective. But obviously you can just look at any past effort and you go, that's really not utopia, <laughs> that thing you created there. <laughs> so that's what that reminds me of right there. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think. Oh, it's like this, this poem. Um, by Marianne Williamson. Mm -hmm. I love this one. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. You were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we consciously give other people permission to do the same. Mm -hmm. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. It's like breaking the spell of... Yeah we we're just discussing well that's the invitation in this so we're in this interregnum right we're between stories there's the old story there's the new story i'm convinced that a big big piece of the tapestry that hangs behind this story that helps us understand what it's all about is about resources we're eight billion people going to nine ten whatever the number is and we're pretty much out of the tasty sweet sweet uh, creamy nougat center that was in this earth which we call oil and and other fossil fuels and not that the world will run out, but I mean, we're just, we can't just have more, 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 more. And, but we have a financial system that's geared for more, 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 and a set of elites who always want more, 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 right? Watching the absolute astonishing, breathtaking gap that opened up between the ultra wealthy and everybody else in the last just three years, you're like, wow, when is enough? 
never enough, never enough. And our money system allows that too muchness to just really go out of control on steroids. And so you have that dynamic. You have the all too human thing, which is nobody ever gives up power. Nobody ever gives up, you know, their money willingly, right? And and at the same time, you have all these resources actually flashing bright red, right? Mm-hmm. So not like super critical runs out tonight at eight thirty, but I mean, we, we we obviously can't keep running the same story. So we know that. Like anybody who can just add the add the numbers up goes, okay, old story doesn't just continue for 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. Although you'll find lots of articles in Forbes about how if we just had, you know, a few more electric cars and a couple more windmills, this will all sort itself out. It's all junk, right? I mean, just it just doesn't survive first contact with math. But <laughs> that there the the elites know this already, right? And you don't have to be elite to understand this. It's not like some magic, like deep insight. Like this is like basic material biophysics 101. It's like very easy to understand. Like if you have this many barrels of oil, you can make this much economy and you can support this many humans, right? At a certain standard of living. It's just simple. Mm -hmm. So they know that we know that it's kind of like that Soviet thing where they said, we knew they were lying. They knew we, we knew, knew they were lying. We knew they knew we knew they were lying, right? So we all know that the old story can't continue. Obviously, we tell ourselves fictions. Obviously, there are people who are in denial about that who aren't ready to face it, um, all of that. And that's all true. But the, the, the super elites are, are busy acting as if this was actually the way we had to go forward is mm-hmm. how are we going to divvy this stuff up? We we don't want people getting all restive about it, but people are getting restive, obviously. And so we watch these things start to devolve around the world where social unrest is really coming forward. And, and that's that's a phenomenal, wonderful thing. And so the good part about that story, though, this is the best part. That's your wake up call. That's your moment to say, oh, I I get to step into my life more fully. This is this is really this moment is I think I arrived here for a reason. Maybe you feel like you arrived here for a reason. Maybe other people do. But I know for a fact that I am here with a set of gifts to help do what I can in this period of time. This is when the new story gets rewritten, right? So the old story is broken. I have no interest in trying to fix that. You know, if somebody said, would you fight for your country? Well, not what it became, not what it currently is. I'll fight for what it could be, right? But not what it is, right? What it is is a country that couldn't figure out how to prosecute Epstein appropriately or, you know, find out who, who he's, his main clients were, right? At the same time, it, you know, it's just, it's just, no, no, there's, right. I don't fight for, for lack of integrity. That, that doesn't interest me or a fundamental lack of beauty, right? You know, what, what are we going to do? Fight for that strip mall outside of Paramus? <laughs> nah, not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> Go to Jim Kunstler's eyesore of the month if you ever want to see what not to fight uh. for. <laughs> That's so funny. Yes. It's all good. Jim Kunzler is a great guy. His, his writing is fabulous too. It is. So here we are. I think this is this is actually the exciting part of this story is that, that a lot of what a consumer culture is all about is not about living to me. It's about being asleep, right? And we notice this because this is what the culture really wants. This is my culture. I'm speaking as a U.S. citizen. Here's what my culture wants. It says, we want you numb. If you're too happy, got a pill for that. Too sad? Another pill. Alcohol store, no more than five minutes from your house in any direction, right? 
But things like mushrooms that could open your mind up, oh gosh, schedule one, ter terribly, terribly illegal, right? And so we, I just see over and over again that, that the things that are actually helpful and supportive for people stepping into their free-thinking sovereign selves, right. to their true power, pretty much all of them are illegal, <laughs> or or heavily, criti you know, criticized or, or um, mm. yeah. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's overly overly harsh, but that that's how I see it at present. Mm. So the good news with this whole story, I love watching people wake up because that means you have an opportunity to step into your life, really live it. Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity in some ways. I know it's paralyzing to think through some of the repercussions of what's happening. I just look at Sri Lanka, for example, and try to imagine myself in a world like that, which is what I've been doing for years already, sort of anticipating that coming what here. What happens when you when you think about that? How does that resonate for you? When I when I start to put myself in those people's shoes, I can just imagine the panic in my body. You know mm. that. Oh my God, that feeling of miss, fear of missing out, you know, FOMO or just that if I'm not thinking really clearly, I could make a, a grave mistake, you know, if you're not there waiting in line for three days before the shipment comes, you won't get any of the next allotment of whatever fuel is left. I mean, these people don't have ways to cook their food or, I mean, I don't know how dire it really is, but it looks pretty bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I have fear. I mean, obviously most people probably do that comes up, you know, when I sort of go into the future with that, that setting, you know, that level of anxiety and unrest, social unrest. Yep. Yep. I follow along and, and Paul Osterhaus saying truth, beauty, integrity. Well said, Chris. Hey, Paul, how you doing? Um, Paul and I know each other very well at this point in time. <laughs> we're, we're Twitter buddies and, and he's a peak prosperity person as well. So hey, good to see you here, Paul. Um, Paul has uh, had to fight the fight the, the good fight down in Australia um, and had, had quite the battle as a doctor. Oh, yeah. Ran into the buzzsaw. Um, pretty strong. So I'll, I'll let Paul tell the rest of his story at some point. But that's... Um, Quite this, quite the story there. Uh, so, yeah. What else? What else do we see here? Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, MC is saying psychedelics and cannabis are not addictive, less so than coffee. Exactly. So, Schedule One drugs. Just to complete the story, a Schedule One drug means it has no medical use and is highly addictive. Right. <laughs> If you know anything about mushrooms at all, you understand that somebody who like does a hero dose, the last thing they do is wake up the next day and go, "I'm doing that again." Right? They're like, <laughs> "I think I'll take a month," you know. <laughs> it's just the opposite of addictive, uh, you know, something like. Anyway, so yeah, but but they're absolutely the the drug laws have been absolutely, hundred percent, completely, nonsense, right? The things that truly are addictive, like. Oh, that whole Purdue Pharma, OxyContin, horrible story where the FDA totally dropped whatever ball they're supposed to be carrying, which obviously they don't. They're, they're just, they're, they're there for other purposes. But seeing how many, like what country tolerates 100,000 opiate deaths within its young prime, prime age people, right? And just sort of shrugs and goes, well, what are you going to do, right? <laughs> um, lots of things you could do, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Including root cause analysis and figuring out where that's coming from and understanding why people are demoralized and, and why they have no opportunities. And this feels like the best option they have to check all the way out mm -hmm. in many cases. Um, it, but, but then I feel like my country just basically shrugs like, oh, what are you gonna do? Yeah. And then 
take people who have legitimate pain and squeeze the bejesus out of them, right? So that they can't actually get the, the pain relief that they need because, well, we wouldn't want you to get addicted. It's just, it's insane. It's insane. And that's just one okay. class of medications. Just one class of medications. You know? Yeah. There's so many others that are just as bad. Yeah. That's the one that the news focuses on, but pay no attention to the, like, hundreds of other drugs that are severely damaging to people. Yeah. That the doctor's just like, here you go. Oh, you want some more? Here's yep. another. <laughs> yep. Oh, um, my word. Very quickly, uh, while we're here, because um, I, I want to lead into something else, over at Peak Prosperity, uh, I've just been just on a content sort of, uh, th this is a content rich environment <laughs> for me right now. Uh, put out this episode right here, um, which just came out. So this is for our, our members. And we got this kind of feedback from this. Um, Robert Hanford wrote, of all the pieces come together at once in this excellent video. Uh, Chris has done an excellent job covering this same critical information. He's done even better developing the staggering implications. Thank you, Chris. I used to have trouble getting through some of these presentation videos. I would become anxious, depressed, not anymore. Now I'm much more energized to take action. The more action I take, the better I feel. Ha ha. Through the adjustment reaction. Yes, I wasn't even slightly bothered by <laughs> this latest video. Was completely calm. It is all clear. It is here. Now move. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I wanted to bring that one forward Good for because you, Robert. Yeah, well that's the whole point, right? It's so the adjustment reaction for people listening who don't know. What's an adjustment reaction? Well, I mean, in my words, it's it's when you hear a piece of information and we all as humans have an emotional reaction to that and it can vary in length. So my adjustment reaction might be shorter. It might take me a little bit longer to sort of pivot and change my actions based on whatever new data comes in, mm -hmm. right? So in my words, an adjustment reaction happens when there's a new risk or threat presents itself mm. and there's a moment of orientation. Mm -hmm. So um, in the military, they call it the OODA loop, the observe, orient, decide, act, O-O-D-A, OODA, OODA loop, the OODA loop. And, and so let's imagine you're a concealed carry person and you, you carry a weapon with you and you're just walking along and all of a sudden somebody comes around a corner and has a gun in your face. You're going to do what everybody does. It's going to take you seconds minimum to figure out what your plan is, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're going to go through a very rapid sort of an adjustment reaction through this whole thing. You know, as you adjust to this new circumstance, this new risk, observe it, orient to it, you know? The orientation might be observing and orienting. You might be like, okay, does this person look like they know how to hold this gun properly? Does it, do I, do I think it's loaded? Do I notice like, is the safety on? Is their finger on the trigger? Are they shaking? Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's be a lot of sort of input data you would have to take before you'd come up with any sort of decision Yeah. that would lead to an action. But it could be something really big, right? Like, like you're in Sri Lanka and all of a sudden you wake up one day and the presidential palace is overrun and they tell you we're all out of food and fuel. Like this is going to be a much larger OODA loop sort That's of right. adjustment that, reaction to get through. That's why I feel like we've been trying as much as we can to do what we can in terms of preparing just because we, we believe that, you know, we're headed toward this sort of future where mm -hmm. we don't have enough resources for everybody to continue living at a certain standard. And yeah. so um, anticipating that and changing behavior and going through those OODA loops or those adjustment reactions now gives us an opportunity to, f you know, free up parts of our mind to also continue living at the same time. 
as well, which I think is really important. Well, a couple really important things that Robert elevated here. First, I love, thank you, Robert, for writing this. This was in reaction to this particular piece. So this is a very recent comment. This just went up on Tuesday of this week. Today's Thursday. So it went up a couple days ago um, as of this uh, presentation here. So I love this idea, though, that the more action I take, the better I feel. Because mm. that's how I operate. So if anybody asks me, hey, Chris, when you see all this troubling stuff in the world, what do you do? Some people would meditate. Some people would drink. So whatever. I buy stuff. Um, I, well, I take action, right? So to me, if, if I know something about, say, the state of the financial world, but all of my wealth, such as it is, is, is exposed to that situation and I don't do anything, anxiety lives in that gap between what I know and what I'm not doing. So the only thing, because I can't unlearn stuff, the only thing I can do is then figure out what I want to do to take action, to close that gap up. So if, like, I don't know, like, let's say I live in California. I live right on top of the San Andreas Fault. I know there's a possibility of an earthquake. And I know if an earthquake comes, the next 48 to 96 hours are going to be kind of, kind of challenging, going to suck. So what could I do about that? Well, I could buy a kit, you know, a 96 hour emergency kit, put it in the, in the, in the closet, never think about it again until we get an earthquake. Right. And then I would pull it out. But if I didn't do that, I would have this sort of nagging sense in the, my brainstem saying, I really probably ought to do something. Because even though I'm ignoring it, I can't completely ignore the idea that I live on top of the San Andreas Fault. But turns out only 3% of people in California are in any way, shape, or way prepared for an earthquake, even though most of them live only on top 3%? of 3%. Oh and this is with like the state agencies and FEMA advertising to people saying, risk you know you yeah. could do something and by the way the cost to buy a 96 hour emergency kit's like 100 to 200 dollars depending on how fancy you want to get it's not it like the action's easy but people still won't take the step won't do that because on some level psychologically they would have to admit to themselves this might happen so it's somehow buying that it's like it's like making out a will it's kind of like oh I'm, i have to admit something awkward that i didn't want to face you know <laughs> um so i think that's that there's a psychology to it. It's not rational, clearly. Rational thing to do is, you know, get the basics taken care of. Mm -hmm. um, Anxiety is weird that way, too. It has a mind of its own. Yeah. It really kind of takes off with you if you don't get your own momentum and start taking those actions. They yeah. just build up and then it just sort of steamrolls you and then you get paralyzed and you feel like you can't do more. And that's actually what gets you out of it in the first place most most times. <laughs> Dan Edwards pushing pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable. I love you, Dan. He says I didn't see. He says, Hey, are you two gonna finally get hitched at some point, maybe? Your body language <laughs> as of for a while now makes me ask. <laughs> well, Dan, so that's gonna have to remain a secret for just a little longer. So thanks for asking though. Hope to see you soon. Come on up. Come on up. We got some stuff going on. You should you should come check out up here. Dan lives uh, not too far from us, and so we know him hey, Dan. reasonably well. So good to know you there. Um all right, so so this this though, when 
I really think if I could give one strong warning for everybody out there or, or give permission or however you want to phrase it, if I could encourage you in some way, it would be to attend to those bottom two rungs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs if you haven't, right? Bottom, physiological. These, this is like if somebody's holding your head underwater, you will find out if you're actually a pacifist or not. Nobody actually is, right? You will scrabble to get back to the surface. So breathing, food, water, sex, sleep, homeostasis, excretion, just can you attend to these basic, basic things down here? Food, water, sleep, like, so are you safe? Do you know where your water's coming from? There's a lot of people in the Southwest now, even including up to Utah, which is, you know, just West to me, it's not fully South anymore. Um, in just really bad water situation. It's a bad drought this year, right? Really bad. Shoot. Really bad drought plus a failure to think ahead and just build too many houses and use too much water and grow growing crops in the desert. Um, oops. Oops. The second layer, though, is uh, security of your body, of employment, resources, morality, the family health, property, things like that. Um, so really taking care of those bottom two, super important here, especially... So I just got a, um, I was telling you about Michael Jan was telling me about what's going on in Europe. And he just heard from one of the German people that he's in contact with that um, 400 kilos of wood to put in a fireplace or, you know, wood stove over there was 90 euros. It's now trading for 500 euros. Can't buy a chainsaw anywhere. So this is the reason when people ask me why, you know, why, so one of the things Evie and I do is, is we buy um, we buy trees. So if a piece of land comes up and it's got a lot of trees on it, we're like, yeah, I'll take some of that. And the reason is, is that we're all going to be Germans someday. I know this. Uh, sooner or later, someday we run out of the energy resources, and then we go back to the original energy resources, which is trees. Love trees. Spiritual, magical beings, or you could consider them BTUs on the hoof. Um, as well, so so uh, I do believe that that trees are going to become part of our mm -hmm. part of our cycle of staying warm again in the future. But that's already true in Germany that's this unbelievable. year. If it gets bad enough, you know, when it gets bad, you get all the way bad to the real bad, where you burn your furniture, right? I mean, like so, this level of coldness is going to be coming. This is that's the physiological, that's the bottom rung on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like people in Germany, you need to start really thinking this through, right? Um, and so the whole idea of having a house that's at a perfect level of comfort is going to give way to sweaters, mm -hmm. sleeping with big down sleeping bags at night. Furry or, dogs. Furry dogs, if you can feed them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So Shoot. that's my strongest advice is uh, really attend to um, these as much as possible. So, um, <clears throat> oh. Um, There's a super chat up there. Yeah, uh, I can't quite resolve the name Neil Finn twenty eight. But anyway, question here is: uh, Is the dollar finished as the world's reserve currency? Well, you know, funny you should ask that. Um, I just put out. I do this very rarely. So I'm an information scout for people. I analyze things. I you know I've been doing it a long time. It's my biz. Um, I just posted an alert today. Uh, and it's about that. It's about this idea of a currency crisis. The, the dollar is clearly going to run out as a reserve currency at some point. I can't tell you how fast. I'm sure there's still months and years in this overall story. But if you haven't, please, please, please look at what the BRICS countries, including especially Medvedev of Russia, has been saying in organizing the BRICS to 
be done with the West and all of its meddling ways. Um, it won't help that the euro is, is busy getting trashed at this point in time, and for a lot of reasons, not least of which is that the economy of Europe is about to get just go through an absolute ringer. You can't starve an economy that size for energy without massive impacts. So we're already seeing that in the currency over there, and that's going to, of course, impact both sense of inflation, because as your currency falls and you're an importing nation for energy, your costs go up. Uh, we call that inflation, but um, it's really... We always have it backwards. Inflation, people describe it as prices going up or down. It's the value of your money going up and down, <laughs> mostly down, right? So uh, the reasons for that are, are complicated, but it, at heart, they're simple. Um, your central banks and leaders did stupid things. They printed too much and made really dumb decisions. So I, I truly consider that Europe going into uh, basically a, a sanctions war against Russia without having first thought through their energy situation just a little bit more elegantly was dumb. Just really, just just not not yeah. not smart. Not strategic, yeah. it seems. So There's another super chat up there too, sorry. Oh sure, what does it say? Um, from Billy Montag. Yeah, Billy Montag, yeah. I'm not sure if you read this, but I'd, I did hear the new Omicron Subvariants and vastly different, and even CNN says that the variants are able to evade earlier vaccine-induced immunity. Ah, Billy, yeah, about the about these um, uh, the new variants, particularly the BA.5. But Omicron was able to evade right from the get-go. So let let's be totally clear: the vaccines themselves were actually geared against the Alpha variant, mysteriously in this whole story. Somehow, not one, but two separate companies were able to turn around a vaccine against that specific string of letters that we call the genetic code of the alpha variant in 48 hours. A couple of years later, they're still struggling with how they could possibly do that again <laughs> for these new things that came out, which suggests maybe it wasn't just about getting the string of letters. There might have been some earlier work, which raises a whole host of very awkward questions Definitely on top of awkward. that very awkward right 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 winks as good as a nudge to a blowing bot right very <laughs> awkward okay so um so all of these different omicron variants uh so there was ba1 ba2 to start they're totally different from these other things they're not even variants they're like that's like saying well you got you got f-150s you got rams you you know trucks you got all these classes of truck and then you have bicycles they're just kind of different right so these things were completely different they yes have wheels they both have <laughs> wheels yes they both go down the road but beyond that very very dissimilar sorts of things um so i'm 99 convinced that both the original variants plus the omicrons came out of a lab mm. um, very very strong evidence on on both sides of that and now that the Omicrons are out in the wild, they're busy doing what they do, which is they're evolving. But the Omicrons were so good at evading. They, they had not only did they were they not impressed with the original vaccines, but the data came out within weeks that if you had two shots, you were 40 percent more likely to catch Omicron than if you were unvaccinated. We've known that forever. That mm -hmm. was in the UK data. So, oops. Right? So that whole safe and effective, effective at what? Well, not stopping transmission <laughs> or catching this thing, right? 
And now, now that you have this big stupid situation where you've got a lot of people who have this very temporary waning vaccination sort of like roller coaster they're on, depending on which booster cycle they're in, right? Plus you have these wild type, plus you have these new Omicron variants all circulating and doing what they're doing. You've just created basically a giant Petri dish for exactly what Geer Vandenbosch has always talked about, which is an immune escape E&E room, escape and evasion room. It's just a test. It's just a, it's just a place for the, for the virus to practice doing what it's going to do, which is to get away from and evade um, the, the vaccine. So uh, as well as natural immunity too. So it's just, it's just a mess at this point in time. Um, in fact, it's such a mess. I think we should go there now and, and let's talk about this. So um, uh, this, Ryan, pull up this one if you could. Let's listen in. One of the things that's clear from the data that even though vaccines, because of the high degree of transmissibility of this virus, don't protect overly well, as it were, against infection, they protect quite well against severe disease leading to hospitalization and death. And I believe that's the reason, Neil, why at my age, being vaccinated and boosted, even though it didn't protect me against infection, I feel confident that it made a major role in protecting me from progressing to severe disease. And that's very likely why I had a relatively mild course. So my all right, there's a lot to unpack in that one. <laughs> First up, they're not overly effective <laughs> at stopping transmission. What a word. Whoa! Thank you, Fauci. Welcome to my side of the table. You're a year and a half late, but it's good to have you over here. Now we can have a science discussion, which, by the way, that ain't science where you go, I'm reasonably certain that my vaccines protected me from having a, a blah, blah, blah. Oh, you are? Well... I was completely unvaccinated, had Omicron, nothing bad happened to me, I got over it. I'm reasonably certain that my unvaccinated status is exactly why I didn't have a serious run at this. Or, or follow along, it could be that nobody, very few people have a serious run with Omicron. Eh? Because you know what? <laughs> it's, it's a really tame variant uh, by the numbers. I know some people can get it bad, listen, but some people can get... You know the shingles bad some people can get uh the flu bad i mean it's just that that happens but compared to delta omicron is like a pussycat and this thing was a lion right it's just completely different so that was com not science not even remotely science but but what was that again he said he said three things so let me just hear that again though one of the things that's clear from the data that even though vaccines, because of the high degree of transmissibility of this virus, don't protect overly well, as it were, against infection, they protect quite well against severe disease leading to hospitalization and death. And I believe that's the reason, Neil, why right, right, at right, my age... All right. all right, I don't need to hear that last part. They do protect against severe disease and death. He says very declaratively. Now... It's not my job. I'm not paid $453,000 a year to be familiar with this data like he is. I haven't spent 50 years of my life pretending I'm good at this stuff. I've only spent the last two years pretending. Um, so let's go to the data real quick, shall we? So this just came out. Um, this I just pulled out. There, they gave this big spreadsheet. It comes. This is from UK. 
and they've done a couple of things here. So this is age standardized. So they've so this is age standardized. So we don't have to worry about did older people get it or what's all age standardized. So we've taken that out. Mortality rates by vaccine status for all cause deaths. And this is age standardized mortality rate per 100,000 person year. So we've we've normalized this for population and age. So we can't say, well, more people were unvaccinated or more people were vaccinated. We can't say it was more older people. All that stuff has been stripped out. Now, I'm not saying they did this right. They might have totally screwed this data up too, but this is the data we have. And it comes from the ONS in the UK. So this is as official as it gets. And since we don't track it at this level in the United States, Fauci would have to use this data to say, but we do know these vaccines prevent serious hospitalizations and death. All right. Well, let's take a quick peek here. Let's you take sound a... like him. <laughs> oh, this guy. I jeez. So let's check this out. Row 302. COVID-19. Deaths involving COVID-19. This is for the most recent month that they are reporting, which is May. Unvaccinated people, there were 82 total deaths that they could record. They cranked it into person years. I don't know how they did that. But basically, the idea is they say for every 100,000 person years, age adjusted, that people who are unvaccinated are kicking around, 77.6 of them are going to die um, from COVID-19. Out of 100,000. Yeah, but out of every, so it's all normalized. So yeah. we can compare okay. one group to the other. But now let's go down to that purple row. First dose, at least 21 days ago. So these are people who've had a, at least just one dose, right? Whoops. 122 people are expected to die for every 100,000 person year. So I'm not much of a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure 122 is bigger than 77. <laughs> I'm pretty sure about that. It's close to double. <laughs> and the difference between these two groups is that one of them had a vaccine and one didn't. And the one who died more from COVID was the one who had at least a dose of vaccine 21 days ago. Well, that's weird. Let's go down further. These X's in that column mean that there's no data to compare, so I can't tell you what's happening in those. So we have to jump all the way down to the yellow. Second dose, at least six months ago. So these people have had two jabs. They should be doing better, right, Tony? Yeah, 106 of those people are um, per 100,000 person years are gonna die, which again is more than 77, that's weird. Now, it gets a little clearer down here. Third dose or booster in the sort of pinkishy, bricky color down there. Third dose or booster at least 21 days ago, 33.1. That's less than 77. So you, I watched people write articles and they said, oh, that if you got your third booster, you have half the chance of dying compared to the unvaccinated, which is cool. I agree. There's something a little weird about those middle areas right there where you have a higher chance of dying so but this is just for COVID-19 deaths you know what else they did in this particular data set mm -mm. if you dig down far enough they went there I have been waiting for this for a long time you know what they did they looked at deaths from not from COVID comparing it vaccinated to unvaccinated so now we finally get to look so oh, you, finally. remember those numbers are like 77 100 but 33 Mm -hmm. You only had, so there was 40 more people might have died who were unvaccinated compared to triple jab. Now, what happens? So people die from all sorts of things, not COVID. So what the first thing we're finding out is people are mostly dying from not from COVID, right? If you had a, uh, what was it? 77 people per 100,000 years in the unvaccinated were going to die. 
well, now it's 795. It's like 10 times your people are dying from other stuff, old age, heart attacks, you name it, right? So unvaccinated, they were dying at a rate of 795 per 100,000 person years. First dose, whoops, 1,751. Ooh, that hurts a little bit. Second dose, 1,745. Second dose at least six months ago, call that 1,600. Third dose or booster less than 21 days ago, 2,000? These are horrifying. Wow. And then the numbers come back down and are basically indistinguishable up here. If your third dose or booster was at least 21 days ago or ever vaccinated, there is no difference between being vaccinated or not. So if you had your third booster at least 21 days ago, you are roughly comparable to an unvaccinated person. But getting from here to there, that is a dark road. Tons of people are dying. Wow. Way more. And by the way, if this is why it was always like, you can't just look at just how many people died from COVID who are vaccinated. No, 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 no. We need to look at the whole story. We need the whole story, right? <laughs> we care about COVID and non-COVID. So we look at this. Here we say, well, if you're triple jabbed, about 40 people got saved, maybe from here to here, from, from one end of this story to the other, right? So from... Maybe 40 people didn't die from COVID if they were triple jabbed. Unfortunately, you lost 40 or 50 along the way <laughs> trying to get to your triple jab. Right. So on balance, we could say that might be a big fat zero where it gets really not clear at all. And Tony Fauci's words are absolutely not just a little bit wrong, but diametrically false would be here where we would say, ouch, from an unvaccinated person trying to get to the third dose, you're going to lose thousands of people mm. until it finally settles out to hmm, doesn't really do anything for us <laughs> great no great that's the data that is the data we currently have now i'm not saying it's right it could be wrong they might have messed up the methodology but it's the data we have that's what we got so this does it take into account who's dying because they got the you know the vaccinations well, no, it's hinting at it, though, right? So, so in that, that purple in that center section right there is saying mm -hmm. we ought to look into this because something really cool is not happening here. Vastly more people are dying because they've had one, two, or just after their third dose. And, of course, this doesn't surprise me because when you say here the third uh, dose or booster was at least 21 days ago, where people actually have the problems and they, and they end up succumbing is often that first two days right. post shot whether it's your first second or third those first two days is where you have a huge cluster of of issues, of that, issues that show up yeah. for people right usually it's within that first week or two but by 21 days i think the bulk of if there were going to be side effect issues or adverse events that were going to crop up they crop up within that 21 day window so but this is just the data we have yeah right i i wouldn't dare try and share this on twitter because i would lose my my account over there who knows what will happen here but this is just that's the world we live in where this is data it's officially presented it comes from the ons in the uk i'm not making anything up i didn't do any of these calculations myself i didn't fiddle with any numbers you can see these are consecutive rows right 455 456 457 hmm. and on down i just grabbed data i didn't do any sort of cherry picking i didn't realign anything i just took their data in their spreadsheet and took a screen grab of a contiguous chunk of it because that's is something i hadn't seen before that i was super interested in which is looking at non-covid19 deaths comparing these different groups right here glad to finally see it 
it's not, I'm not at all happy with what we found in this data when we got here and it confirms what I think we've been worried about for a while. But this is the data. It's really obviously obvious and compelling. So now one more time, let's listen to this. One of the things that's clear from the data that even though vaccines, because of the high degree of transmissibility of this virus, don't protect overly well, as it were, against infection, they protect quite well against severe disease leading to hospitalization and death. Right. And I believe- What does that mean? What does that mean to protect quite well against disease and death leading to hospitalization? What does that even mean against this data? Chirping crickets. Yeah. Ryan, we got to get a button where you press where we just hear crickets because that, that's like going to be an important sound effect for moments like this. <laughs> yeah. All wow. right. At any rate, uh, I just I, I just had to go there because um, because this this is just this is this. Yeah, actually, you know what? When you follow the science, you know, it always does go. It Science does take you somewhere. Obviously, <laughs> if you follow the science, it goes places. <laughs> it goes different places for Tony than for me. But Tesca's one of us is human. Um, I just this guy, he's just horrible. Well, I mean, and that people still believe in him is just is uh, kind of unbelievable to me. Um, speaking of which, while we're on the topic, this What's just came out today from Justin uh, Turdo. I might be misreading that. Update. At GovCanHealth has approved Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine for children who are between six months old and five years old. Vaccines are safe and effective. There's that statement. And they remain the best defense against serious illness and hospitalization. There's that claim. Please get yourself and your kids vaccinated. Now, this is July 14th. That's today. So you can clearly see... Um, that this is recent. Well, what was a little awkward, a little awkward. Um, this is uh, Canada's health minister. So listen, let's listen in right here. Just listen very carefully. See if I you just recommend anything. it to everybody instead of saying it's a personal decision. Because at present we're doing a risk-based approach. What's the risk? The risk, uh, there's always a risk to, uh, to having any therapeutic, to, uh, to having any therapeutic, 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 therapeutic versus a benefit. You wanna make sure there's a very strong benefit uh, versus the risk. If for an 18 year old healthy individual, the ritual, the risk to getting hospitalized, hospitalized if we have no medical illness uh, is very, very low. We know there is a risk, a very small risk, one in 5,000 that may get myocarditis, for example. Uh, and uh, you'd have to have that discussion on the risk benefit of a complication from the vaccine versus a benefit of decreased hospitalization. <laughs> so, so there's basically a one in a million chance. I mean, it's just ridiculously small for an healthy 18 year old to go to the hospital from COVID mm -hmm. itself. And he just throws it out there. Well, well, you have to do a risk benefit. And it's very small. It's only a one in 5,000, right? So, so if you vaccinate 100,000 18-year-old boys, 20 of them are going to the hospital with myocarditis. Their lives just took a turn. Pretty permanent, too. No such thing as mild myocarditis, temporary, right? Those words. Mm -mm. So, so he just basically said... He gave you a number. He said one in 5,000. Well, the very next question, which he couldn't answer is, well, what's, what's compared to what? We're doing risk benefit. So if it's a one in 5,000 for this 
medical treatment, which he called it, mm-hmm. which was interesting parsing. They haven't therapeutic. called therapeutic, which is good because that's what it is. But I'm starting to, he- I'm, I'm feeling the cracks in the story. You know what I'm saying? We're starting mm-hmm. to feel like they're starting to parse that a little bit. And he said, oh, well, you know, you got to measure that one in 5,000. That's, that's the risk of this thing. But think of the benefit. Great. What's that number? Mm-hmm. 99.9995 survival for uh, people in that age range who are healthy. Um, it's even higher than that. So uh, at any rate, that's what we're seeing there. So totally Canada's fallen on this. What's which, the deal with um, infants and like very young children? Because I thought I saw something the other day in regards to a child that had died or was in you know bad shape after being given one of these injections when they were there have been a Newborn. number of... Have you seen that? Well, they say that they have they, the, these aren't responsible for this. Just we know that we gave your infant this jab and two days later they showed up here with seizures, right? There's been several cases okay. like that so far. Um, but sometimes seizures happen. We don't know. But you know why we don't know? Because nobody's studying it, right? So next thing you do is you would actually study that and look. Nobody's Nobody on our side is all that interested in looking into it at this point. Um, and by the way, I'm just, I'm not going to read this because I don't want to trip up the AI bots and all that. But I, I re- remember that time when that happened. Yeah, me neither. Right. So <laughs> I'll let y'all read that for yourselves. Um, so it's just, it, it's just, this whole story is starting to get, uh, it, it's breaking down. But that this still is the, this is horrifying, right? Whatever's going on with Justin Trudeau and what's going on with Mark Rutte out of, out of Holland and all that. This this is really tired, old propaganda, and it just is that that he's using this as as an excuse to go after your infants and, and young children. This is disgusting. This is really inexcusable at this stage. Yeah, it really is. So, because otherwise you should be able to. All right, what's your data? You want to tell me it's safe and effective? I'm seeing a lack of both of those things in these numbers, right? And this should be the conversation we should have. Not not these proclamations that, well, everybody knows, of course, that we don't have to discuss safe and effective. That's already been settled, right? No, it really hasn't. And this is the data we have. Now, you unless we can argue this data isn't right, but we can't argue that it's telling the story you're saying it's telling. And this is official. This is UK. ONS data. There's similar data that was coming out, um, particularly out of Alberta and out of uh, British Columbia before they stopped relaying that data. They're like, ooh, it's getting awkward, right? But that's the part of being in a totalitarian system, right? The totalitarians, they need that, the, they, this is, the, that thing we're seeing from Justin Trudeau is demanding fealty to an ideology. It's a story. You have to conform to this narrative. The narrative is safe and effective. The narrative is the government knows what's best for you and will tell you, and you have to believe in that. Because if you ask even one question, you might be a racist or a misogynist or a trucker, which is worse because they're all of those things in one, in one spot, right? So that demonization, the othering, because you can't have any brooking of dissent within yeah. a totalitarian system. And that's the, that's the fight. That's the actual fight we're up against right now mm-hmm. is to not slip down that path because as mm-hmm. Matthias Desmond says is um, a, at first it's just, it's just like totalitarian light, 
And then that ideology, the fervor, the passion of those ideological standard bearers comes forward. And if you don't stop that, if you don't nip that in the bud, if good, reasonable people do not stand up and go, I don't see it that way, well, you go down to mass atrocities. That's where it goes. So, Ryan, do we have that quote from uh, Matthias maybe that, that speaks to the importance of uh, individuals, mm -hmm. like, like how, how we can... Yeah. The, the, the most important uh, advice I could give, and that's also what I bring in my book, is that I always, I, I always come back to this, is that we all have to stick to the first and foremost ethical rule for a human being. And it is that it should try to articulate uh, the words that emerge in itself and that seem sincere and honest. That's the first and, and most important thing, I believe. I think that, that we all should continue to speak out in our own way. We should, in a dehumanizing world, we should stick to the principles of humanity. And the first and most important principle is the principle that it, as a human being, we should do our best to articulate the words that seem sincere and honest to us. We should uh, claim our right in this world to give our own opinion, not trying to convince other people, because that usually doesn't work very well. The more you try to convince someone, the less you will be, uh, you will, the less you will convince someone else. So, but just uh, uh, living up to the ethical duty of 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 articulating uh, uh, the words that seem so honest and sincere in us. Uh, that I think that's the first and most important advice. Mm. Speak your truth. That was good. Speak your truth. I get a truth. lot from, from his words. Yeah. Speak your truth. I, I like that a lot. Um, and so... Well, let me turn now to the super chat we got. Um, Neil Phelan, 28, asking, uh, as a European, life is great. Even unemployed people have all they need. What does Europe need to do to maintain our standard of living, in your opinion? Oh, that's easy, Neil. Uh, you've got to make sure you have energy. If you have your energy sources all laid out, uh, everything else is possible. Then culture just decides what to do with that. Uh, so, so good news, Europe already lives on half the energy per capita that the United States and Canada do. Um, bad news, it doesn't have its own domestic sources of energy to carry it through that, that both those other countries do. So that's it. It's really, it's, you've got to maintain that. The second thing, of course, is you've got to make sure that uh, there are countries that are resource rich, but poor. And invariably they have broken institutions. They're corrupt. The institutions no longer serve the people. They serve themselves. So that technocracy. So I would say, honestly, you got to get rid of Brussels. You, you, whatever's going on with all the technocrats hanging out there, thinking that, that you regulate prosperity into being is actually not the case. It's not how it works at all. It's actually the opposite of that. Um, so, so I would say uh, it's time that you're going to have to stand up and do what, uh, what Matthias was just saying, which is you got to start, you got to start speaking out that, mm -hmm. that, that easy time of saying, Hey, things are working pretty good. We're okay. We're doing pretty fine. You know, how do we maintain that? Now you got, now you're gonna have to fight for it, right? Because there are people who are going to wreck that. And yeah. I think the people who nudged, cajoled, pushed, and otherwise failed to plan for going into a war with Russia would be people who are very actively, maybe with the best of intentions, but they're on the road to hell, uh, destroying things because they, they don't really know um, mm -hmm. what's really going on there. So I, 
But speaking of this idea of, of people standing up, I did want to turn to this thing here in the in um i got to talk about this cultural revolution what's, what's that oh there are a couple from uh somebody named jessa that oh okay we might want to get to a quick quick one before you move on if that's okay um, yeah jessa great thanks asking um would you consider interviewing Catherine austin fitz mm -hmm. thank you for your amazing work peak prosperity team you're freaking amazing thank you thanks jessa yes uh Catherine and i uh we're, we're, we're actually <clears throat> dancing an email so so we will we'll we'll figure that out um, I'm also going to be talking with uh, Lynette Zhang, and I think she's interviewing me. So that's awesome. There's another so one. So looking forward to that. From Jessa down at the bottom. Why don't you, can you read that one or you want yeah, me to? Yeah, I can. Uh, Peak Prosperity has helped me navigate the chronic undercurrent of anxiety and fearful propaganda bombarding Australia 24-7. The Australian government and mainstream media continue to push the vax with outright enthusiasm. Fourth booster now. She's oh, yeah. Poor Australia. You. Yeah. Um, th there's a few countries that have really, they're doubling down, busy doubling down rather than just looking at the data. Um, and so that would be, weirdly enough, all of them have the queen on their currency, right? So that's Canada, that's Australia, that's New Zealand. Um, all of them have been, are just, um, yeah, it's going to take a while for them to lift back out, I think. And, mm -hmm. But it requires people like you, Jessa, to, to stand up and, and just be firm and be firm and be polite. Mm -hmm. It's amazing what you can do when you're firm and polite. Right. And that's what it takes. It just takes people asking those uncomfortable, awkward questions that don't have good answers. And those mm -hmm. often serve to wake people up out of the mass psychosis. Maybe not the diehard advocates like there are people that 30 percent who really go down that the, the gleeful camp guards in this story who are just true believers in the ideology. They're very difficult to wake up. But the 10 to 20 percent who never fell for it have a duty and an obligation to try and speak for and wake up and recruit, as it were, the people who are in the middle, who aren't really saying anything, but don't really go along with it. Trust me, there's a lot of them. 30, 40, maybe 50% of the population is in that camp. And so they're just waiting for somebody like you to stand up and, and be brave for them so they can um, decide that's where their morality lies as well. Um, all right, so so let's, let's turn now to, uh, this little thing, this was an amazing exchange that just came up here. And uh, this one really caught me. Evie and I have been chatting about this. Ryan, we've all been chatting about this one for a while. Let's listen in. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to all of the witnesses for being here. Uh, before, uh, I, I want to visit with you, Ms. Meske, but before I do, I just want to clear one thing up. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important because of my us, line of questioning because so we can't talk about it because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist 
I'm is, denying that trans people exist by asking are you, you if you're talking are you? about women are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that the, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think women can get <laughs> So you're denying that trans people like this thing. And that leads to violence? Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you? Absolutely. Or are they also treated like this? Where no, you, no, no, they're, they're told that to they're at opening up people to oh, violence. We have a good time questioning. in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned a you, lot just I know. in this exchange. Absolutely. Extraordinary. Wow. Okay. Um, a lot to unpack there, obviously. Uh, but what I note there is, is to me, without diving into the subject matter itself, there's, there's a, there's a, there, we're talking to a true believer. I mean, these, these two people have, have different points of view, but this woman is a true believer in something that she's talking about it as if, as if, as if um, a physicist is schooling a freshman in the first law of thermodynamics, which got resolved 350 years ago. It's well studied. It's a way beyond any sort of an idea. It's a theory with tons of data and somebody's denying that it exists. And so there, you, you just see that same level of exasperation, you know, where <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like she's trying to school them on something where she's just certain about it. And this stuff didn't exist just a few years ago is an idea set. So, no. so, but to her, it's orthodoxy already. She, she can be, dismissive and and even just like like she she's perplexed at the ignorance before her hmm. about something that let's be honest is brand new from an idea set but the second thing i noticed was that departure where she said i would have you note that that one out of five trans people tries to commit suicide because they're not recognized or is it because of some other reason right that wasn't established you know it's just it's taken as an axiomatic faith that any violence that is being perceived that these people are doing to themselves must be due to mm. other people failing to recognize them in a, in a way that okay. it's this external validation that's not happening. But what if it was actually her problem where, because she is introducing young people at a, at a critical stage of life and they become confused and that confusion, as we know, often, you know, suicide rates are actually very high among teenagers because hormones. Right, because it's a really challenging time of life. So for whatever reason, she's not looking at potentially the full scope of where the challenges might come to. It mm -hmm. must be coming from that guy because he doesn't believe what I believe. That's where the problem is. Well, and there's a, a unclear communication that seems to be going on there as well, where she's not owning her own opinion fully. She's mm. sort of saying, I hear this going on, not, you know, I'm, I, I, whatever, just stating how she feels uncomfortable and just owning that straight out and letting him do with it what he will. But she's, you know, very, she's going after him in a way that doesn't feel honor. It doesn't feel like it's clear communication and it doesn't feel professional at all. No, it's not professional it's, and it's not respectful mm -hmm. and, it, and it's actually not effective. If what you want to do is, is win somebody over, I could give her a lot of schooling on that. The, what you do not do. So you don't berate people. But this, I think, encapsulates, she could be a standard bearer for a big part of what I consider to be that movement, that side is, no, no, what we're gonna do is we're gonna shout you down, shame you, make you lose your job if necessary, excommunicate you. These are the Chinese struggle sessions back in communist China, right? Where they would take somebody who wasn't a true believer and hang a sign, publicly shame them, humiliate them, maybe then execute them. The struggle sessions where they would have to struggle to try and, and show how shamed they were that at having failed to be a true enough believer in the cause of communism, right? 
this is so what what I'm what I detect in that is ideology, mm-hmm. and ideology has that fervor to it, right? Which which I think we can all detect now. Here's the thing: why now? Why is this coming up now? Is such a big thing, right? I, as as we've just talked about, there's really giant things happening that we're going to require our full attention. Is this really the most important? Like if we're saying, out of we've we've analyzed everything, and this issue that's now on the table, capturing all this emotional intel in, energy, this is the most important thing we got to attend to right now. Not the fact that the Federal Reserve created like, you know, 150 new billionaires the past couple of months. Not that we're running out of energy, not that our farmers are stopping to farm, not all kinds of stuff, this, right? But this brings us back to what Matthias Desmond was talking about. This is what, how a totalitarian system moves forward is that is that you can't have a shared reality anymore. In fact, really absurd things have to come up and it's almost by definition axiomatic. These absurd things need to become that object of fixation. We're gonna, we're gonna the more absurd it is, the more we're gonna dive into it and uh, really, really expend and thrash around on that. Um, and so that's what I was detecting in all of that. But think about the complete lack of of grounding that exists right now. We can't even, like, we used to know what men and women were. We don't know anymore. That's pretty destabilizing. We used to know a lot of things which we don't know anymore. Like, we can't even have a shared conversation about are these vaccines safe and effective? Like, I got data that says maybe not. You know, so so that whole idea of having zero shared territory between two or more separate camps, this is deliberate. This is not accidental. I think this is a deliberate set of actions. And there are people out there who gain from that. They gain because they sell us more stuff. They sell us ideologies. They sell us political things. They get personally wealthy. They sell more armaments into the into the theater of chaos. Whatever the story more is, medications, more medication for people that are unhappy and feeling anxious as a yep. result. Yeah. Yep. All right, continue. So our job is to not buy that crap, though. Mm-hmm. Our job is to say, <clears throat> nope, nope. So, so that's the only way we we inoculate ourselves around this, as far as I'm concerned, is by educating ourselves. That's what this program, Informed Consent, is about. It's about if you have the context, you can reasonably go, "Am I going to let that in, or am I going to keep that out?" and increasingly i just keep that stuff out like i just like that i just can't i just i just can't allow that to come in and occupy my my head rent free you know got more important things to do oh yeah the desmond clip about certainty let's play that in right now because that's awesome that the mental system of a human being is never capable to uh assign definitive meaning to words and we will ever we will forever be unsure there will always be a mystery in our lives and in the first at first sight this might make us insecure and anxious because uh, we human beings have a hard time dealing with uncertainty but uh, actually it's exactly because we can never be certain that we all have the right to live life in our own way and that we all have the ethical duty we have no other possibility than to give our over our own answers to uh, uh, in life and that is exactly it's the uncertainty that makes a human being truly hu- humane and every time someone tries to eliminate this uncertainty he dehumanizes life <laughs> 
And that's exactly what totalitarian leaders do. Totalitarian leaders believe that they have the ultimate answers. Stalin said it literally. My, popu my population, he said, should react like a dog of Pavlov to what I say. They shouldn't think. They should, they should react as machines. When I say this, they, sh they should do that. And when I say something else, they should do something else. So he wanted to exclude all uncertainty. He wanted to impose one way, one theory, one ideology uh, and a relentless way to society. That's so characteristic of totalitarianism. It's the core root of totalitarianism. The word totalitarianism in the first place means exactly that. Total. That means total. A total theory of how society should be organized. Uh, it, 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 it makes life uniform. Everyone should behave in the same way, should wear the same clothes, should build the same houses, should and so on. That's totalitarianism. It's just a radical incapacity to experience the fundamental uncertainty of human existence as, a, as the precondition for creation, singularity and uniqueness in life. What did you think of that? That was excellent. I think that's really excellent. So the whole idea that, um, I mean, that's what I heard is in, in that last clip in that exchange between Senator Hawley and the Berkeley law professor training the next generation of legal minds um, was that, that level of certainty, just mm -hmm. absolutely certain that, that this whole new construct that just basically came up very recently is the right and one and true way. And mm -hmm. that there really can't, we can't brook any dissent against that um and so creating it's offering though a lot of certainty where there isn't certainty mm. i can't think of anything less certain than the subject of human sexuality and relations right but or we more want, personal right <laughs> we want to make this absolutely certain now if you just understand the orthodoxy and you get the grid you understand it this is how it is right and, mm. and so we all have to have to accept and live into that right and um it's it's a, just an astonishing thing to, to witness uh, the energy behind that at this particular juncture. So that's what I saw there. And um, I don't know, I thought that was worth talking about. Absolutely, I have a great quote uh, that has to do with that. That says, um, quote, life is a difficult assignment. We are fragile creatures expected to function at high rates of speed and asked to accomplish great and small things each day. These daily activities take enormous amounts of energy most things are out of our control. We are surrounded by danger, frustration, grief, and insanity, as well as love, hope, ecstasy, and wonder. Being fully human is an exercise in humility, suffering, grace, and great humor. Things and people all around us die, get broken, or are lost. There is no safety or guarantees. The way to accomplish the assignment of truly living is to engage fully richly and deeply in the living of your dreams. We are made to dream and to live those dreams. And that was said by somebody named Sark, S-A-R-K. Sark, I, well, uh, I like that. Isn't that great? I like that because that is that's exactly what Matthias is talking about mm -hmm. and why I love that interview is very philosophical, but it, it comports with what I believe too, which is that um, the more you try and make and reduce life to these little certainty it's just a bunch of billiard balls bumping around and if we just had clever enough ai we could figure it all out and know where this universe goes right and, <laughs> and that's not how it is it's not like that it's deeply uncertain and the core of of real scientific inquiry like 
every good scientist gets there. I'm not talking Fauci. He's not even a scientist. He's, a, he's an awful human being and, and basically a psychopath. But for a good scientist, you quickly find out that the closer you get down, the further you study whatever it is, physics, chemistry, biology, doesn't matter, astronomy, the closer in you get, the more you realize that you're looking at something that's completely bizarre and can't possibly be understood, right? Physics, if you really understand, physics says that a conscious observation will change a particle from a discrete probability field down into an actual thing, right? We have all these experiments where the waveform collapses into a particle. So an electron or a photon is one of two things. It's either a wave-like probability series or it's a, or it's a particle. The difference, if, when consciousness comes in and observes it. That's so crazy. It is crazy. So that is the world we live in is just fundamentally just nuts at its <laughs> core. It's irrational. And so all those attempts to try and squeeze this down into a rational mm. deal, right? These transhumanists, the WF crowd, we're going to eat crickets. We're going to put chips in people. We're going to AI everything. We're going to, you know, put Neuralink chips in their heads. All of these are just like attempts to control, control, control. Everybody's on a vaccine passport. We have a social credit system. We track where everybody goes at all mm. periods of time. And then we'll get to this nirvana. That's their nirvana, right? <laughs> somewhere Sounds down like that hell. path it is hell <laughs> but it's fundamentally flawed because their organizing principle is we can control all of this mm. and even a little bit of, of of observation of life says no you can't and that's why i'm convinced that people need to attend to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs because guess what they're going to screw this up they're going to control it until it breaks on them uh, it happens every time to totalitarian regimes anyway but this time we're going to do it with eight eight and a half billion people depending on when it breaks we're going to do it without the energy that we used to have to rebuild without the soils we need to to just start over without rich water sources in where all the people are we're going to do a lot of like this time extra degree of difficulty english on that ball right <laughs> and so that's why i think that if we had that humility that's why i like that line in particular we have to have that humility mm -hmm. which is we don't we can't predict what's going to happen we can't we can't we just can't do it. We can't know. Give, but part of that wonder that. is beautiful. And I think everybody who says that they do know, you know, the politicians that try to sell us their way of doing things or the WEF, I think they're, they're not just wrong. I think they're lying, you know, and I think it's our job to know that too, to, to realize and recognize that there's something bigger than, than us in this life potentially, or some unknown that makes it magical and beautiful mm -hmm. and that we don't need to conquer that we actually need to let that be alive you know we do we do and that there's the idea that we're, we're governed there's natural principles right gravity is a thing we live in a for of a reason a universe that expresses itself in a duality two strands of dna males and females up and down positive and negative charges right it's like we don't live in a in a tripartite universe we whatever reason we're, we're in a world of duality so there's rules that, that sit under these things and one of the core rules is we live in a chaotic universe, which means you can't predict things. It's going to do what it's going to do, and you can watch and you can see things emerge. So the fundamental rule that I believe in for humans is an organizing principle is you have to have freedom. When people have freedom, they can then pursue happiness. They, they're not, not a guarantee they're going to get there, but if you have freedom, people will self-organize in certain ways that history has shown us are awesome. When you have the crushing of the soul and you have the opposite of freedom, we history is clear. You get a lot of darkness around that. 
That's what I saw in that law professor, somebody who gleefully wants to crush us back down into darkness. She doesn't know it yet, and, and obviously I think she means well, and, and she goes to sleep at night, so she has an organizing principle where she's the hero in this story. But for me, what she's asking of us is something that is very clearly been proven throughout time and time again in history, doesn't go to good places. Not for the people she's ostensibly trying to help, not for the people she would want to lord over and, and, and oversee. And I'm not saying that, that Josh Hawley's like the be-all, end-all in that story either. I thought he comported himself reasonably well from a calmness standpoint, good debating um, uh, tactics we could all learn. But this is about freedom now. We're down to the core principles. If you have freedom, if you have property rights, intellectual property rights, physical and intellectual property rights, and people can be secure, right? So if we can do, you just give those basics, it's amazing what happens next. Mm-hmm. I have great faith in individuals. I think the authoritarians don't. They don't trust people. They call them deplorables. They call them ignorant. They truly believe deep down that they're more suited to lead everybody without a lot of data to suggest that that's actually the case <laughs> in their own personal lives or right. more generally, right? Or even any votes to indicate that. <laughs> right? Lots of reason to suspect that. All right. So at any rate, that's that was kind of what was on my mind. And um Let's see what we got here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, read, read one. Yeah. First, top one. Um, what will happen to the states when they do lose the reserve status of the dollar? In your opinion, it's one. Okay, Neil. That's one. easy. The United States will find out it did not hit a triple. It was born on third base. A lot of advantage goes away uh, <laughs> suddenly when you lose your reserve currency status. There's probably ten to twenty trillion U.S. dollars floating around offshore that won't want to float around anymore and will suddenly come home, which means what? Everything that we import will suddenly explode in price. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a lot of things. So uh, it's very, very bad when you lose your reserve currency and particularly this time, not gonna be good. You wanna do the next one? Um, <laughs> Steve, Steve. Steve Ross Holmes. Ross Holmes. Soylent Green, here we come. Soylent Green, here we come. Well, Yum. <laughs> Crickets, That's okay? First crickets. <laughs> yeah. There's a path. We don't go to Soylent straight away. There's a path. Begins with crickets. Mm -hmm. All right. Next one um, <laughs> is from William Schwant. Schwant. What is the benefit of having the population? Everything they do is to shrink the population. Can you steel man an argument for this? Yeah. So steel manning means, you know, take the other side. Like, like say, wh wh why? why? Why would they want to have, have cut in half, mm -hmm. having the population? Um, well, because if you look at this from a resource standpoint, which, where, which world would you rather live in? A world where we can, we could support 12 billion people. I'm reasonably confident. I've run some numbers, but we're all eating algae, right? And it's a very meager sort of existence for each person. Our individual standards of living at 12 billion is not awesome. Or would you rather have a future where there's 2 billion people and everybody has a really pretty abundant life. Which, which is, where, where, do you, where do you draw that line? So people draw, that's a moral line that gets drawn and there's not an actual answer to that. Some people say, obviously more souls on the planet, 12 billion is the right answer. And other people would go a higher quality of life so those people, humans can live more fully into their full humanness and actually touch the divine and sublime through having the time and the freedom and the resources to really do that pick right there's but there's no right or wrong answer you just it's a moral it's a moral question which is why these things have to be phrased as, as moral decisions they're, they're not technical decisions at this point they really aren't yeah. um 
So. Dan, uh, James Edwards, not Dan Edwards, whoops. Oops. James Edwards James. said, gestalt therapy? Gestalt therapy? Sure. We need lots of therapy. <laughs> All therapy is good. All therapy. MAPS <laughs> therapy. Um, body uh, therapy. Noobs says, technology is the shorthanded language to evolution, a mutation, and it can cause advancement or ruin. Hmm. Uh, also gold or silver? I'm not sure what he's asking. That's a secondary question. Yeah. Well, technology, I, my, my belief in, so, so technology is our religion of the day. More people have a faith, a belief in technology than religion currently, at least in Western cultures at this stage. So that faith in te technology is very strong. Is it misplaced? I believe it is. Mm -hmm. I believe it's our own Tower of Babel. It's, we're going to become gods. You hear it, the WF. That Yuval Noah Hariri guy says, he basically says it flat out, this technology, we're going to be gods. We're like gods now. We're like gods. Well, the Bible says that people tried that before. They called it the Tower of Babel, meaning they thought they could build themselves up. You would know more about this story than I would, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. You can go there if you want to. But, nah. Um, it's a longer story. And, uh, and Nikki, thank you for your support yeah, too. Shout out to Nikki and yeah. to everybody who joined us this evening. It was really fabulous. Absolutely. Thank you everyone for joining us here tonight. Been great. We loved having you here. We love being here with you. Thank you for all your comments and go forward, be brave, take your true voice out there and um, share it with the world because we need you. So we really do. All right. And we'll see you at Peak Prosperity if you want to stop on by. All right. See you at Peak Prosperity. See you next time. <laughs>